Genesis chapter 44 this evening. Genesis chapter 44. Let me summarize where we are in the story of Joseph and his brothers so that we know what's going on as we come to this passage. Joseph was sold into slavery when he was 17 years old, sometime after that, and was reported dead to his father and expected to be dead by his brothers. His brothers, when they talked to what they thought was the, this ruler of Egypt, um, they said that their other brother was dead. Joseph is dead. And so, at this point, when they come back to get some grain in order to survive, 20 years have passed since that time in which Joseph had his dreams, since Joseph was sold into slavery. And during that time, Joseph worked his way to second in command in Potiphar's house, you remember, only to be falsely accused and subsequently imprisoned. And then he worked his way up to second in command in the entire prison, basically uh, right below the warden. And during his time in there, he interprets two dreams, but those were only interpreted for him to be forgotten for all of two years in that prison. It wasn't until Pharaoh himself had a dream that could not be interpreted, actually had two dreams, could not be interpreted by these wise men and and interpreters of, of these dreams. And that's when the cupbearer remembered Joseph. And when Joseph interprets the dream satisfactorily, Pharaoh puts him in charge of all of Egypt, gives him a signet ring, dresses him up like an Egyptian, and so on. And his job was to prepare for the coming famine. If there were going to be seven years of abundance, Joseph's job was to store up as much as possible so that they would have enough for the years of of blight. And within the first year or year and a half of that time in which the famine hit, Joseph's family comes to Egypt because they're forced to come because they have no more food. And they bring money, of course. Joseph recognizes them and treats them harshly in order to go to Egypt, in order to um, see if they have changed over the last 20 years. And so he initially he imprisons all 10 of them, and he does this for three days. But then he releases all of them except for Simeon, you remember. And in order for Simeon to be released, they had to bring something back. What was that? And to bring back Benjamin, right? So they had to go home. If you're really telling the truth about who you are, then you really do have a younger brother, and we want to see him. I want to see him. So you're not getting Simeon until you bring this younger brother of yours back. So they go back and tell Jacob of this. And, of course, he is not willing to give up his his last favorite son, his remaining favorite son, we could say it that way. And between three and twelve months pass. Apparently the food runs out and Jacob gets to a place of desperation. He says to his sons, you need to go back. It's time to go back. And they say, we can't go. Judah says, we can't go unless you allow us to take Benjamin with us. And if you allow us, I will take personal responsibility for him. If I don't bring him back safely, then let me die. Jacob reluctantly agrees as we saw last week, and he sends them off with God's blessing. And when they arrive, of course, Joseph treats them 
with special favor, surprisingly. They're expected to be uh, they're expect, expected to be ambushed while they're eating, when they're a place of vulnerability, that they're going to be overtaken and forced into slavery, and that all their donkeys and things are taken away from them. It's not what happens at all. Jacob sits them down in order by birth, which is very peculiar for them. How could this possibly happen? How could they, anybody know this? But the most peculiar thing comes at the end of chapter 43. That's where I want to point your attention here before we read our passage. Chapter 43, verse 34. He took portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. This is an opportunity now for the ten brothers to become envious of Benjamin. Why would Joseph, why, why would this ruler of Egypt treat Joseph with such favor? He comes on the scene the first time he even shows his face to this ruler of Egypt, and all of a sudden he treats him with this special favor five times as much food. And this is supposed to give them an opportunity to show if they've changed over the last 20 years. Are they going to be envious of him? Hate the fact that he receives grace? Or are they going to respond by embracing this situation and appreciating the grace that they already have received? This was a chance for them, an opportunity for them to discard Benjamin like they had Joseph. So that's where we are when we come to chapter 44. Let's see how this story plays itself out. Verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the men's sack, sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And as he did, as, and he did as Joseph had told him, as soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. And they had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men and... When you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which He indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So He overtook them and spoke these words to them. And they said to Him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then would, could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. So he said, Now let it also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. And then they hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. He searched beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And then they tore their clothes. And when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? 
God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah approached him and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. And do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out for me, and I said, surely he is torn in pieces. And I have not seen him since. And if you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? For fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. God often brings about severe trials in order to examine our faith. Here we have another test given to the ten brothers. They've already been tested before. When they were were given all the money in their sacks, and the house steward came and approached them and said, what is this, taking the money from, from the master? So we haven't done anything like that. Of course, when they open up their bags, they all uh, recognize it. Actually, they, they had actually discovered that on their own. Went back to Jacob, but then came back and told the house steward about this. And uh, But this time, this is much more severe of a trial, isn't it? Much more severe, because now what's at stake is the freedom of Benjamin. Is Benjamin going to be discarded like Joseph? Are they going to quickly get rid of him now that they have their money, all their grain, enough for their families, take care of them for a while? Are they going to quickly discard Benjamin? In verses 1-5, through we see the occasion for this severe test. The occasion. Joseph here turns up the heat on them to see if they will indeed discard Benjamin. And so they place the silver cup in Benjamin's bag and then overtake them. 
Notice what this cup is used for in verse 5. Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks? So it's for it's used just for to drink out of, of course, and then which he indeed uses for divination. So there's really a twofold purpose. It's not just your ordinary dinnerware. He took it off the table when you're leaving. This is Joseph's cup. It had his name on it. Okay, maybe not his exact name. I don't know if they might know, but maybe his Egyptian name. It was his cup. It was like taking it from his table, and he not only used it to drink from, but also for divination, apparently. This was a uh, generally a pagan practice, but also could be used among believers when they would divine, find out the divine will of God, find out what He had to say. Remember, this is before the Scriptures were written, so they didn't have God's will written down on paper for them. They would have to get it through visions and dreams and, and other things like this. This is often how the... Um, the prophets would get God's Word to them through divination. But there was also practiced in a pagan way as well. And so Joseph was probably using this as a means to try to keep his cover. This cup is special, and as a ruler of Egypt, I use it for a specific purpose. And how could you take this cup? It's not like we wouldn't notice. It's not just an ordinary cup sitting on the table and there's thousands of them. This was the cup of Joseph that he uses for divination. How do you think you could possibly get away with this? And so this leads us to a question. Should we test the loyalty of others by designing a difficult situation for them? Okay, Joseph uses a difficult situation and is less than honest here. Should we do this when we're testing the loyalty of someone. Okay, The first thing I want to say in response to that is that we should not gullibly believe a person's word only. Okay, There is a place for that, to, to believe a person's word. Love believes all things. Okay, Hopes all things. And so on, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But we shouldn't do it gullibly. Proverbs talks about this. Okay, That the simple person just believes whatever they hear. There is a sense in which we need to have an understanding, particularly when we're looking for a person to, to be in a position of leadership. We shouldn't just take them at their word. And that's why, as a church, what you did before I came was you checked my background. You didn't just say, oh, well, he says he's a really good person and, and is a person of character, right? You checked to see if, if other people see that in me. You checked my doctrine. See, if it's not just, yeah, I, I believe all the basics of, of the Christian faith, you checked it through, um, through the ordination process. And I think we should do that. There is a responsibility for us to examine people before we put them into the position of leadership. But how do we do this? How do we examine a person specifically when, before we put them into a position of leadership? Well, First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 talk about qualifications. What are the qualifications of a position of pastor? And Timothy and Titus, or Paul lists them both for Timothy and Titus, the qualifications. And, um, and that requires what we could call testing, an evaluation process. And so we don't just gullibly accept that, hey, you're going to meet all those qualifications. We check into their background. We talk to other people who know them. We watch them in action. We watch them under pressure, hopefully. 
and then we use wisdom because that's what it requires in order to make a proper decision. And so, Joseph, remember where he is. What is he trying to do? He recognizes that as a result of the revelation he has received from God, that these men will be used in a place of power, of prominence. prominence. That God has reserved this remnant, chapter 45 says, so that their people would, would, would grow and be a great nation and that they would lead the nations. Joseph recognized this. And so this is really an examination process before you get to uh, a place where we have it all inscripturated. What are we looking for when it comes to a leader and so on? So I think we can justify what Joseph was doing He was examining them for a position of potential leadership down the road. But the question is, should we manufacture difficult situations to examine a person's loyalty? Should we manufacture difficult situations? Now, I think there is an extreme that we must avoid when it comes to this. Okay, When we're examining any person. Okay, So let's say a, a young person is examining a potential spouse. You should examine that person to see if are they honest about their relationship with God? Um, are, are they serious about the Christian life? Or are their actions consistent with who they are? But there can be an extreme that we can go to when it comes to this. For example, if we were looking at a person for a position of leadership in this church, it would be foolish of us to plant a pornographic picture in their pathway to see if how they would respond to it. Okay, that would be foolish. That's taking it to an extreme. It would be equally foolish to lie to a person in order to bring to the surface what's in their heart. Okay, see how they respond under pressure. You know, they walk into church one day, they're just coming to sit and worship God and you tell them, Hey, thought you I'd let you know your house burned down. All your things are gone. Let's see how they respond. Okay, that, that would be equally foolish. That's the extreme of testing a person to examine them. But I think what Joseph is doing here is, is something of value. When you were in school, you were often told in advance when you would be quizzed or tested on a given amount of material, right? Your teacher would tell you, you know, this is... This is what you have. This is the date you're going to have it. And I'm going to give you a test. And so your responsibility was to study as hard as you could all that material, or in my case, cram at the last minute, and then hurry up and spill it out on paper before it, it leaked out of your brain, right? And, um, and I think that's helpful to, to be able to examine a person to see if they understand the material. But, but I think what actually is most helpful is those those one teachers that you had that one teacher that you had the one where you'd come into class the bell would ring and he or she would say all right put everything away get out a pencil it's time for a pop quiz what we didn't study anything what was the purpose of that it was to examine the understanding of the student on that specific Topic, and that often was a better barometer of where the student was at. Why? 
Because they didn't have time to cram and learn just basic facts. They had to be able to think through what had been said throughout the whole semester and be able to put it down on paper without any, uh, without any notice. And I think that's what Joseph's doing here. See, if Joseph would have told them who he was, if Joseph would have just come out and said it, hey guys, it's me. Now, hey, how, have, you, have you changed any over the last 20 years? Are you, are you treating Benjamin any differently than you treated me 20, 20, 22 years ago? No, instead, he gives them a pop quiz so that he could see that they weren't giving manufactured answers, just kind of spitting them out robotically. This is real life. This is real pressure. There's a real potential for, for the father being disgraced, father being uh, grieved. And so Joseph ratchets up this, the pressure with this, what I would call a, a sort of a pop quiz. And this would bring out what is in their heart. So Joseph sets the occasion for the test by making it more severe. First, giving Benjamin five times as much food as they're sitting at his table, and then next, as he plants the silver cup there. Well, the house steward uh, and uh, comes after them, and in verses 6 through 12, we have the test itself, where Benjamin is treated as guilty. Verse 6 the brothers are accused of stealing. He spoke these words to them, what Joseph told them to say. And they, of course, are confident of their innocence. We do not have your silver cup. And they give two reasons why they, they are innocent. Number one, verse 8, we brought the money back that was in our sack the last time. We're honest people. We don't, we're not here to steal anything from Egypt. And the second reason why, why we know that they were so confident in their innocence is found in verse 9. And that is, they suggested the death penalty for the person who had the silver cup and then slavery for the other ten of them. If one of us has it, that person should die. The other ten of us will be your slaves. This is what Jacob said to Laban in chapter 31. Remember when Laban came up upon them and he said, Who's got my household idols? How dare you? After all these years, you take my household idols. And Jacob says, we don't have them. If anybody has them, let them die. Of course, we know Rachel had them, but she was hiding them, and Laban never discovered them. But this is how confident they were of their innocence. Let that one die. Now, the steward doesn't take them up on their sentence, the, the, the plan that they had said. The one who has it dies, the rest of us are enslaved. Instead, he says, no, the one who has it is enslaved. The rest of you are free. You can go home. Go back to your father. Well, in verses 11 and 12, they open their sacks. And you can just imagine the tension that must have been building as the sacks are being opened. Maybe there's a little bit of, of um, confidence and maybe even arrogance on the part of the brothers. They open them one by one. Come on, let's get on with this. We don't have your silver cup. When Benjamin's sack was opened, their hearts must all have sunk because they knew what that meant. 
Benjamin was caught red-handed. And the response to the test is found in verses 13 through 34. Now here, in verse 13, here's an opportunity for the brothers to just cut bait. This is it. We're done. We're not messing with these people in Egypt anymore. We're going to turn and run. See ya, Benjamin. Good luck to you. This was their opportunity to take their goods and leave. But as we'll see later, they just can't bear to see their father when they come back without him. They can't bear to see their father in distress. Notice how they respond in verse 13. They tore their clothes. And when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. Instead of, what did the steward say? He said, whoever has it in their sack, that one's guilty. He's my slave. Everyone else can go home. But what do they do? They mourn. They tear their clothes. That's the idea of mourning in those days. This is a non-forced response to a desperate situation. Think about this for a minute with me. When they saw Joseph being taken away into slavery, it is recorded that Joseph was begging them, pleading them with them for mercy. And what was their response? Did that cause them to mourn? Did that cause them to feel sorry for him? No. What about when they saw the distress of their father when they brought back the bloody, torn-up coat? Did that cause them to mourn? Certainly Jacob mourned. He mourned for days and days. But not the brothers. And so here's what you have here. You have a major breakthrough for the brothers. The ten brothers who had betrayed their youngest, or, or their younger brother, Joseph. No longer do they come across as these feeling less monsters that don't care about anything except for themselves and their own goods, but as warm-hearted people who care for their younger brother and will not abandon him. And I think this is a sign of genuine repentance. These are not just meaningless actions that they they uh, portray here, but this is actually coming from a heart that loves their brother and loves their father, as we will see. In verses 14 through 17, they acknowledge their guilt. Joseph treats them harshly in verse 14. Judah speaks on behalf of his brother and acknowledging their guilt. And he can't, he can't deny that the silver cup was there. He can't say, we didn't, you know, we didn't have it. And so instead of trying to say, you know, we didn't put it there, he simply just acknowledges guilt. We had the cup. Then in verse 17, notice Joseph gives them a final opportunity to abandon Benjamin. It says, Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Here's your chance. Do you care about your brother? Do you have any concern for your father at all? If you don't, then go back to him. I'll keep Benjamin here. And we see this great act of substitution or offer of substitution on the part of Judah. We already saw this once with Judah speaking to Jacob. If anything happens to Benjamin, let 
whatever would happen to him happened to me. Let, let the blame be on me forever. We've already seen this once. Now we see it before this one who's second in command, this ruler of Egypt. Notice verse 18 that Judah wants to speak to him in private. He says, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant for you are equal to Pharaoh. He wants to speak in private. This isn't a show. This isn't so that his brothers will go back to his father and tell him that, hey, he tried. No, he comes, takes this man aside and says, please, can I talk to you? This would have been a perfect time for Judah to pack it in even. You know what? This is out of my hands. This guy is so fickle. He's like a he's like a woman deprived of chocolate. You know, just up and down all the time. Again, never please him. One minute he's feeding me this great meal, and the next minute he's putting me in prison. Maybe I should have used the illustration of me deprived of ice cream. That's that's my uh, weakness. Um. And he could have said, you know what, I'm done. I'm taking my brothers back to Beersheba with our food, back to our families. There's no way we can possibly appease this ruler. Judah in verses 18 to 31 reminds Joseph, uh, reminds this ruler of their integrity, Joseph. And in the recounting of these past events, you should notice how much he concern he has for Benjamin. Look at verse 20. We said to my Lord, we have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Okay, so he has a concern here for Benjamin. And we see this again in verse 25. Our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But he said, we can't go down. And skip down to verse 31, when he sees that lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servant will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol. Um, Benjamin, uh, uh, Jacob's heart was bound up with the life of this little boy. He's the only one remaining from his favored wife, Rachel. It was bound up with Benjamin. How could we possibly separate our fathers? So not only do they have concern for Benjamin himself, but they have concern for their father now. And as they explain what happened when they went back to Canaan, Joseph now hears this material for the first time. Verse 27, Your servant my father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol. Verse 30, Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up with the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. And thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Joseph is learning this for the first time. We already know it. We've read it. But Joseph is now learning this. What happened when they went back? And and Judah tells him, you know what happened? My father didn't want to give up Benjamin, but I told him I would give my life in place of his. That is, I would 
offer my life as a substitution, that if I didn't bring him back, that I would be willing to die. I offered that to my father. That's how serious I am about not leaving here without him. I have to take him with me. If you won't let me take him, then take me instead. This is what he says in verses 32 and 32 through 34. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Here he recounts what he says to his father. Now I offered myself a substitution. Verses 33 and 34. Now, ruler of Egypt, therefore please let your servant remain instead of the lad a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brothers. How shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Judah offers himself in exchange for Benjamin's freedom. He says, I would rather be a slave in Egypt to die here in slavery for the rest of my life I will be a slave rather than seeing the distress of my father. Notice how Joseph responds in chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out for me. And so there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. And then Joseph reveals himself to his brothers there in verses 3 and following. We have a major spiritual transformation happening here in the life of Joseph's ten brothers. That's what this passage is about. It's about spiritual transformation. That God brings severe trial to examine a person's faith. And here, their faith is shown as having been uh, having progressed from a a time when they were cold and indifferent toward other people to a time where they were warm towards those people and concerned about other people other than themselves. So let me leave you with three statements about spiritual transformation. Three statements. Number one, God desires your spiritual transformation. This is the thing He desires most in you. You would be transformed. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will complete it or continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. God desires your spiritual transformation. and So we ought to be and should be complicit with His work of transformation. If He is changing us into the image of Christ, then we ought to allow that to be happening, not to be resistant to it. And we should recognize that God does care for us. He does want what's best for us. And therefore, since God is on our side and He wants our spiritual transformation, our response should be one of submission to Him. That God, here you go. All that I have, all that I am is Yours. So now I'm going to line myself up, my desires up with Your desires. God desires your spiritual transformation. Number two, spiritual transformation doesn't happen overnight. 
spiritual transformation does not happen overnight. Benjamin is treated with special favor from Joseph in chapter 43, verse 34. And then he is accused of stealing in chapter 44, verses 1 through 13. But notice the contrast between how they had treated Joseph 22 years earlier and how they now treat Benjamin. Joseph had come to them and told them his dreams. And this made Joseph an object of their jealousy. And here's the perfect opportunity for them to be jealous with Benjamin because he also gets more than them. More than they get. The five times the portion. and Instead, they don't. They're not jealous of him. Why? Because they understand, as we saw last week, they understand God's grace now. They got their eyes off themselves and onto God's grace and what it is. And that way, they're not jealous of Benjamin. What about when they had the perfect opportunity to sell Joseph into slavery. They, they thought nothing of it besides Reuben, who had a little bit of hesitation, but didn't shut it down completely. And now Benjamin. Here's a perfect opportunity for them to cast him off, to, to, to get rid of him, to discard him. Now, suppose these events happened within six months after they sold Joseph into slavery. Do you think they would have treated Benjamin the same way that they do here? We don't know for sure, but I would suggest you know. And that's because spiritual transformation takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. It often comes because of the building up of memories and circumstances and trouble and guilt. God brings people to the place in time where they are forced to be reminded of those things. Right? The famine is the thing that ultimately puts the pressure, the squeeze on them to see what's really inside of them. Now, how are you going to respond here? Sons of Jacob. How are you going to respond? And from what we can tell, they respond with true repentance. And so since spiritual transformation takes time, that means that we need to be patient with our own spiritual transformation, how God is working in us. And we also need to be patient with other people. Don't try to manipulate people into conformity. Don't try to alter their circumstances so that you can bring about change. It's not you. It's God who brings about the circumstances and the perfect timing. Yes, keep praying for them. Yes, keep influencing. Yes, keep encouraging them to do what is right, but you can't force them to change. No one ever forced you to change. To get you to the place where you are now spiritually, did they? It was simply a, a long process that happened as you were, were underneath the conviction of the Word of God. And sometimes you had to be reminded and told and encouraged and exhorted and challenged time and time again. And of course, we still need that. And that's the beauty of the Word of God. It reminds us about the things, many things that we already know, right? A lot of times you get to the, you know, the Scriptures and you have something that, you know what, I already know that. In fact, I asked one of my 
kids what they learned in Sunday school this morning, and they responded, I didn't learn anything because I already knew it. <laughs> and my point was to, listen, you can always learn something. There's always something that we can learn. We're reminded about the same thing. In fact, Peter says, I'm not going to stop reminding you, reminding you about the things you already know. I'm not teaching you new things, but I'm just reminding you about what you already know. And that's a good thing. That's the beauty of the Scriptures, the beauty of the local church. We never get to a place where we are we're perfect here. We're spiritually transformed. Now remember, we are being transformed from one level of glory to the next till we get to that place of spiritual transformation, which happens at glorification, which is in life to come. Spiritual transformation is something that God desires for us. Spiritual transformation doesn't happen overnight. And then thirdly, spiritual transformation often comes by way of trial. It often comes by way of trial. There is a lot of talk in the Scripture about testing, about God using tests to humble His people. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 16. I brought about this test for, so that you would be humble and so that you would turn to Me. There are actually two reasons why God tests His people. The first is, is that God tests His people in order to reprove them. To reprove them. That is to, to change them. To, like the furnace of fire on gold, to bring up the dross, to, to improve them, to challenge them, to strengthen their faith. Let me just read a few passages that talk about this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of Him may remain with you so that you may not sin. See, He's testing you in order to reprove you, to make you better, so that you won't sin. Job chapter 42, verse 5, Job cries out to God, I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now we could... We could insert there, now that I've gone through all this deep, these deep trials, now I see you. Hey, God has, has strengthened His faith. He's, he's, he's reproved Him in a way. 1 Peter 1, verse 7, "...so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory." We're not where we are. We're, we're not where we should be yet. And so trials can help in this way to, to help change us, mold us, strengthen us. That's one reason. Is that what God's doing here? Is He reproving these men? I think it's actually the second reason God uses tests that we see in the Scripture, and that is in order to examine a person's faith. That's what He's doing here. He's testing a person, testing these men to see if their faith is genuine. Let me just read some passages here for you. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, You shall remember all the, the way which the Lord has led you in the wilderness these forty years, that He may, might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. In the, in the wilderness, verse 16 says, He fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know, so that He might humble you and that He might test you to do good for you in the end. Because He wants to to bring up to the surface what's in your heart. He wants to see if it's genuine faith. 
Abraham was commanded to sacrifice Isaac. And God responded to him after he passed the test. Now I know that you fear me. Why was he? Why did he give Abraham this test? Was it to strengthen his faith? I think maybe that was part of it. But I think the main purpose was to test him. Now that I know that you fear me. Exodus 16.4 Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they walk in my instruction. Deuteronomy 13.2 The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. It's not that God doesn't know what's in their heart. It's not that God doesn't know what's in our heart. But He tests us in order to, to bring to the surface, to show us individually and the people around us, the watching world, how God can transform a corrupt person. We saw how we once were. The watching world around us saw how we once were, how corrupt we, are, we were. But then, in the crucible of this new test, our faith is, is expressed in a way that it hadn't been seen before. Our faith isn't expressed as clearly in times of prosperity as it is in times of trial, is it? I mean, who can't praise God in times of prosperity? Right? I mean, we, we can. And, and I think that is a, tri- a trial in sense because sometimes people, when they get uh, prosperous, they forget God and turn from Him. We've got to be careful about that. But, but the world, when they look at us going through times of prosperity, they're like, so what? I could, if I had such a good life as you, I'd, of course I'd praise God, right? But let me see you go through some deep trial that I've had to go through, like losing a close loved one or being desperately in poverty, impoverished. I read about a formula for spiritual change a while back, and I was trying to find the source of it. I couldn't find it, but it made a lot of sense to me, and I'll just... Repeat it here for you and try to explain it. The author said, Pain plus time plus reflection on God's Word equals genuine spiritual change. Now, his point was not that that's the only way genuine spiritual change happens, but but his point was a good one, and that is that you know if we have only two of those things, pain and time, but we don't reflect on God's Word, we're not going to be genuinely changed. If we only have pain and we reflect on God's Word, but we haven't given it a lot of time to really hurt and for us to think about it, there's not going to be much change there. But when you have all three, when you have some painful experience over here, and then a lot of time for it to soak in, for you to think about it, and then you're reflecting on God's Word, and how God's Word applies to that pain that you've had, that's when genuine spiritual change comes. There is a sense in which God uses trials to reprove us, but He also uses them to test our faith. And if you've been through a trial as a Christian, you know that there is something eternally special about going through trials as a Christian. 
it makes us long for the life to come, doesn't it? It makes us to long for Christ's return. It, it makes us cry out to God for help. It makes us want to shed our sinful persons to, to, to get out of this world, in a sense. I mean, to, to, to quicken the time when Christ will come. And that's a good place to be. A place where we may not be as readily without the trials. We don't wish trials upon anyone. We don't wish them upon ourselves. But when they come, when they come, we can be happy that we know they come from a good God who is there to use it as a means of spiritual transformation or to express our faith in a way that we couldn't express it before. May God help us as we go through trials. Let's pray. Father, we pray for Your grace. We speak soberly about the trials of life. And we are amazed at how You transformed the life of these seemingly debased, depraved men cared nothing, seemingly nothing, about their own family before. Now, they have concern for their father. They have concern for their brother. They acknowledge their own guilt. They're not envious. You changed them. And we can't help but think of our own lives and how You've changed us in a very similar way. We know what we were like. We know how depraved we were. And how left to our own sin, how wicked we would be and how much trouble we would have gotten ourselves into. But except for Your grace, we would be just as bad off as any other pagan person in this world. And so we're thankful for bringing to us the Gospel. We're thankful for, even as Christians, humbling us at times in trial. We pray that You'd help us to think rightly about these trials that come into our lives. They're not a surprise to You, but they're ultimately used for Your good purposes to bring about what You want to bring about so that You can have glory. We want to see You receive the glory that You deserve. If that means difficult times, then we're happy to accept them, no, but, but only if You are there with us all the way. And we know that You will be. Give us the strength, Lord, to help, to, uh, to be able to stand up in the midst of trial. Not to long for the life that we came from, a life of slavery to our sin, but to enjoy the freedom that is in Christ, even though it's accompanied by trial and suffering. May our faith be shown as gold and, and may it be continually be strengthened as You impart to us Your Word through the preaching of it and through the encouragement of others, memorization of it, through reading of it, reflecting on its truth through song and so on. We long to know Your Word more so that we can know You more. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.